0: You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org. So, we are beginning a new series on parables, or the parables of Jesus, or to steal another phrase from a Jewish scholar and writer, Amy Jill Levine, who will come up again, somebody that I recommend. Uh, We're looking at effectively short stories by Jesus. So we have a really special guest today that uh, we've said already, but before we welcome them, I'd, I, was, I thought it might be good to sort of give a, a bit of an introduction to parables to sort of set the scene, uh, you know, help us understand what, what even is a parable, uh, maybe kind of why Jesus told them, how they're structured, and then, um, yeah, we'll invite Rabbi Monique up in, in a sec. So firstly, why, you know, why look at this? Of all the topics that we could choose, why is it that we're, we're looking at this one? Um, and all three synoptic gospels—that's so Matthew, Mark, and Luke—so three out of the four uh, written accounts that we have of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus contain these parables, and quite a lot of them. So Luke's gospel has the most, there's 24, and in fact, one third of the recorded sayings of Jesus in the synoptic gospels are in parables. So this is um, a theologian called Brad Young. Um, if we do not understand the parables, we miss what may be known about the historical Jesus one must understand parables to know Jesus. So if we want to know Jesus, if we want to understand him, we've got to understand parables, uh, and not just the specifics of what parables mean, but perhaps why they're used as a tool for teaching. So in etymological terms, um, I feel sad we haven't got... We've got one translator in the room, but we've got... In the church, we've got a couple of people that are translators, so I'm always wary when I start talking about etymology, which is basically the history of words. So hopefully I've got this right. But... um, A parable, basically, I think it literally means to throw or cast alongside. So it starts with something familiar, something that we know, and then it also introduces something new or something different, something maybe that we uh, wouldn't quite expect. So something new alongside something familiar. Or again... um, back to Brad Young. Brad Young wrote a book called The Parables, which I've chucked in the quiet room at the back for anybody that wants to have a look at it, but um, I'll be dipping in and out of that, and probably a few of us will, because it's a really good book. So he says, a parable defines the unknown by using what is known. It begins where the listener is, but then pushes, into, sorry, pushes beyond into a new realm of discovery. So when we read the Gospels, we can see, can't we, that Jesus told stories about sheep to shepherds, seeds to farmers, Uh, You know, his stories would have been familiar to the people that um, were listening to them. They would have understood the context, the different scenarios, the individuals and examples that he used. But they also included perhaps something that they wouldn't have expected. So kind of a twist at the end of the story, a surprise or something that you'd kind of go that would make you go, huh? Um, It would have been quite shocking at the time. So why did Jesus tell so many parables? What was his, his purpose in using them? Well, firstly, we need to remember that, that Jesus was Jewish, and not only was he Jewish, but he was a rabbi amongst the other rabbis who would have all used this method as a way of teaching and perhaps prov- provoking thought and discussion. So he used them because, you know, essentially this is what people were doing. It was, it was kind of natural, normal in that context. It's what other rabbis did, and it was kind of expected, really. So that's perhaps one reason. And um, secondly, the way that Jesus taught, I think rarely, sometimes frustratingly, maybe just for me, uh, rarely gives these clear answers. You know, sometimes people ask him a question and then he answers with another question or he says something just really bizarre and um, that you're like, what? Uh, so he rarely sort of teaches with, with those kind of um, clear cut answers or directions. Uh, this is from another theologian called Ken Bailey. Jesus was a metaphorical theologian. That is, his primary method of creating meaning was through metaphor, simile, parable, and dramatic action, rather than through logic and reasoning. So again, going back to that culture and context that Jesus was in, don't forget it wasn't in the West, it was in the East. And in the West, we're sort of used to this idea of logic and reasoning and kind of linear arguments, knowledge and facts. Whereas in the East, traditionally, the importance is put perhaps more on story and abstract concepts So again, you know, using a teaching element where there was perhaps uh, more abstract, more ambiguity was, was again, sort of quite normal in that culture. There's a great conversation between Jesus and his disciples where they actually ask him why he uses parables. Um, You can find it in Matthew 13 if you want to look it up. So Matthew 13, 10 to 15. And I'm actually going to read it. It'll be on the screen as well, but I'll read it from the message version because I really like how it just brings back, the message version, some of the sort of... um, I guess, the kind of starkness or the, it makes it the, the kind of bluntness that it would have been communicated with. And I think this particular version really draws out what Jesus was getting at when he explains why. And it's lovely, isn't it? Because sometimes you want to be like, Jesus, why did you do that? And there's actually someone that asked him this question that we have that account, which is um, really good. So yeah, really important to look at it. So yeah, Matthew thirteen ten to 15. Why tell stories? The Jesus, sorry, the disciples came up and asked, why do you tell stories He replied, you've been given insight into God's kingdom. You know how it works. Not everybody has this gift, this insight. It hasn't been given to them. Whenever someone has a ready heart for this, the insights and understandings flow freely. But if there is no readiness, any trace of receptivity soon disappears. That's why I tell stories, to create readiness, to nudge the people toward receptive insight." In their present state, they can stare till doomsday and not see it. Listen till they're blue in the face and not get it. I don't want Isaiah's forecast repeated all over again. Your ears are open, but you don't hear a thing. Your eyes are awake, but you don't see a thing. The people are blockheads. They stick their fingers in their ears so they won't have to listen. They screw their eyes shut so they won't have to look, so they won't have to deal with me face to face and let me heal them. But you have God blessed eyes, eyes that see, and God blessed ears, ears that hear. A lot of people, prophets and humble believers among them, would have given anything to see what you were seeing, to hear what you were hearing, but never had the chance. So there's something about a story, uh, a narrative, a metaphor that helps us see or, or hear something we perhaps, for some reason, couldn't see or hear any other way. Um, I don't know about you, but I can be like that. I stick my fingers in my ear. I don't want to know. I don't want to hear it. Um, but a story or a parable helps us perhaps unlock some of that and see and hear something. I don't know if you, how many people here have um, you know, maybe watched a film or read a book have, and have kind of read about something fictional um, and suddenly, that story helps you work out something in your own life, or helps you understand a situation, or how to, to live in a new way. Um, a simple example might be for those of us that uh, I'm not including myself in this, that perhaps go to the gym and maybe listen to those motivational songs, or you know, perhaps you're you're running a a marathon and you watch Rocky the night before, you know, watch him climbing those steps. And there's something about you that 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 sense of of kind of emotional motivation builds, and it's like if that character can do it, so can I. Sometimes we see ourselves in fictional characters and allows us to imagine what we might do in a particular situation. Marcel Proust, who's a, a French writer who was uh, quite prominent at the start of the last century, said this. In, in reality, every reader is, while he is reading, the reader of his own self. The writer's work is merely a kind of optical instrument which he offers to the reader to enable him to discern what, without this book, he would perhaps have never perceived in himself. And obviously, it's talking about books, but it's the same, isn't it, for any kind of narrative, whether that's presented in film or verbally or, you know, uh, whatever. Um, Narratives help us reflect, and we see ourselves in the story, and it helps us imagine new ways of being or answers to problems or situations. Um, I read a book called Flickering Images, which talks about theology and film, which is a really interesting conversation. The two guys that wrote the book talk about this concept called pseudo-identification Uh, where basically we identify with a character which then kind of draws us into this sort of narrative space and we then become what they say participants within this sort of constructed reality and that narrative like wakes us up, wakes our imaginations into sort of imagining new possibilities and solutions. Um, So basically the simple version of that is we imagine, our imagination wakes up and we begin to, to explore new possibilities for ourselves that we wouldn't have explored or considered before. I think, in all my reading about this, this is probably my favourite quote, um, and actually the, the sort of, I guess, the sentence for me that really sums up beautifully uh, the purpose or the function of a, of a parable. So again, this is from Ken Bailey. A parable is an extended metaphor, and as as such, it is not a delivery system for an idea, but a house in which the reader or listener is invited to take up residence that person is urged by the parable to look on the world through the windows of that residence. It's a lovely way, isn't it, of putting it. Um, So in summary, then, the parable creates this kind of fictional reality which resembles something familiar to us, and we're then drawn into this constructed space to identify with something or someone within it so that we can understand something new about ourselves, our lives, and about God. So that, in a nutshell, I guess, is, is what parables are. And so for each of us, this might look completely different, um, because we all have different situations going on, we have different backgrounds, we'll interpret things differently, and that's also part of the joy and and the function of a parable. We won't all get the same meaning from it. So there's one um, ancient commentary that talks about the Torah or scripture um, as having 70 faces, so it's like the gem, um, like a diamond, uh, like a gem. So you keep turning the gem and the light refracts differently every time it turns, and that um, I, I think is a good way to sort of understand the parable. You know, we could read one parable, can't we? And we can all uh, find a different meaning. We can apply something different from it. And that is not um, a flaw of it. That's, that's a good thing about it, that it can speak to us in lots of different ways. There's lots of different meanings and applications, even if it's all coming from, from one story. Okay, so finally then, uh, let's take maybe a brief look at the sort of form and structure of a parable. Um, and this is also from Brad Young's book. Um, so it's important to say not all parables fit into this uh, structure, but I think it's almost helpful to sort of go, okay, mostly this is sort of how they, um, how they look and how they play out. So there are sort of six stages. So I've, this first word is just the word that you just have to say with confidence. So I'm just going to go for it. The prolegomenon. Does that sound like I know what I'm talking about? Great. Right. So that's basically... Typical theologian that just comes up with a fancy word for something that he could just be like, the intro, but there we go. Um, A word or sentence that introduces the parable. Okay, so um, uh, quite a few, a a common example is, you know, the kingdom of God is like, you know, or there was a man or, you know, just there'll be a a word or a sentence that introduces the parable. Then the introduction of the cast, so the characters, who's in the story then the plot of the story, what's going on, and then there'll normally be a conflict of some kind, not necessarily conflict as in like there's a big fight, um, but there's some sort of like aggravation, conflict, situation, something going wrong, something that needs resolving a problem. And then obviously there's the resolution of that problem somehow, um, normally perhaps in a way that we wouldn't normally expect or predict. And then the final part, which is a really important part, is that there's usually always a call to either a decision or an application so you've got to decide what you're going to do um, or there's a a call to sort of apply it to your own life and i I can't stress this enough, that final stage is so important, you know, that it's easy to just read a nice story, isn't it, and think about what we should do, but these parables are there to provoke us into living differently, and we're called to act in response to do something differently because of what we've learned, and that's the difficult bit. Once we've been into that constructed reality, the idea is that we then put it into our actual reality, that we apply it and make it, um, live it out in real life. So hopefully all of that is helpful. I know I've probably chucked a load of information at you, but I think that is, you know, we'll record it. You can always access the recording if you sort of want to go back. But, um, you know, essentially that just gives a bit of an introduction and a framework as we then explore specific parables sort of over the next few uh, weeks. And I've added a couple of books, actually, to... um, the sort of library in that quiet room, which is sort of at the back there. And, um, you know, we, we have a range of, of books in there. We're trying to keep adding to that, but people are welcome to to look in there. Usually we'd let you take the book away. But with these two that I've added, I would just ask that you leave them in there for now because our speakers are going to need them over the next few weeks. But while you're hitting the building, obviously, you're really welcome to go in and sort of have a look. And, and once the series is, is over, obviously, you can take them away and borrow them. That's great. Um, so, yeah, these, um, these books, ones I'd recommend. So I've mentioned Parables by Brad Young, which is an excellent specific look not only at parables as a, as a whole, but each um, individual parable is talked about as well. Um, Amy Jill Levine, I can't speak highly enough of her. Um, she has a Jewish-annotated New Testament, um, so it's like a, com- a, a sort of bi- a translation, really, of the New Testament that um, brings out lots of aspects of, of Jewish application interpretation, which is, you know, absolutely essential um, if, you need, if you want to understand this. Kenneth Bailey's Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. It's a meaty one, but it's great. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend reading it from beginning to end. <laughs> um, but yeah, to sort of as a reference book to dip in and out, it's, it's incredible. And then Short Stories by Jesus. I mentioned Amy Jill Levine. Uh, this book really helped me understand some of the ways that traditional Christian commentary has perhaps been a little bit anti-Semitic or um, not, uh, doesn't read in, in favour of a Jewish um, I guess, understanding or interpretation. I think we need to be really aware of that as Christians that um, the interpretations or the commentaries that we read of different stories sometimes commentators can end up basically saying the Jews have got it all wrong and they've done it like this, and then Jesus comes along and fixes it, and here it is, and that's a really unhelpful and inaccurate understanding. So, um, that book really helped me understand some of that, some of the incorrect ways that I've applied and interpreted that stuff, um, and you know that really helpful Jewish perspective. So, that's a great, and it's really readable, that book, it's really good. Great. Okay, so I'm very excited that we have Rabbi Monique with us, and one of the things that I knew, I guess, right from the start in planning the series, I think I probably made it obvious a little bit with what I've said as well, that you you cannot understand parables without understanding them in their Jewish context, um, and so, you know, wouldn't it be a great idea to actually talk to people who are Jewish, um, particularly a rabbi? <laughs> so, um a couple of jobs ago, I had um, I taught theology at um, a theology college in Bristol. and I was teaching theology and youth work, and one of the modules that I got to teach was on diversity, which was my favourite module to teach. And we did a, a multi faith aspect to that, so we invited lots of people uh, from different faiths to kind of just share their story and and talk to each other. And that was where I, I met Rabbi Minick, who kindly sort of participated in that. So I've I've uh, sent her a message and was like, hi, Raph, <laughs> I'm what are you doing on Sunday the 15th? Um, but yeah, I'm really excited. So perhaps we could just give her a round of applause as she comes up. <laughs> cool, come on out. And we're going to have a seat because, you know, we've earned that. Right, do Can you,
1: you hear me? P- yeah.
0: Great, good stuff. Um, great. So firstly, I mean, it'd be g- g- great just to <laughs> to hear sort of a bit more about you and what you do and what is a rabbi?
1: <laughs> what is a rabbi? So um, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Um, I've always enjoyed those panel discussions that we had in the past where I, um, that Jo had described. So when she emailed me, I went, oh! <laughs> I was quite excited to be able to come and help. Um, so the word rabbi means teacher, although in a modern context, it's essentially someone who's been trained, who's had ordination, so I went through essentially five years of rabbinic training in London, and uh, that enabled me to look at text in different ways, to look not only going back to Bible, but also looking at all the commentaries, that kind of thing, and figuring out how that fits in with what um, how we live our lives, which there's very strong connections there. Um, so I've been with my community in Bristol for seven years, as I think you described somewhere, it's, we're, we're the Bristol and West progressive Jewish congregation, so we're liberal. Um, if you would go to an orthodox synagogue, you wouldn't see me up here, um, because they would only have women as rabbis. Um, I'm really feeling blessed that we, I live at this time when women are rabbis as well. Uh, I do a lot of things, I teach, I take services. I preach, although we don't really talk about it as preaching. But I give sermons or explain uh, liturgy, explain our sacred texts. I do weddings, funerals, baby blessings—you know, lots of life cycle events—and pastoral care. So probably there's a huge amount of overlap between what I would be doing in a synagogue and what a, a pastor, or a vicar, or a priest would do in a church.
0: Thank you. Okay, so back to parables. Um, tell us what, from the Jewish perspective, what's the sort of role of, of parables within the Jewish faith?
1: So a lot of what you described earlier, which is about helping us to better understand what our sacred text is about, first of all. Um, and of course, the Hebrew Bible is, goes all the way through, through um, Chronicles, so we don't um, obviously have the New Testament in the Hebrew Bible. But it's a way also, we don't use the word parable per se, but there's a word in Hebrew, and it's great. Thank you for the uh, whiteboard. and I'm gonna write it down just so people, if anybody's, I know there are a few people taking notes um, in case they just wanna go look this up later. So the word that we have, oh, it's not big enough, is it? Um, Can you see it from there? Okay, I'll say it, it's Midrash. Right, which, um, which is used a lot in the Talmud and, and I'm, I'm gonna be really careful not to throw around too many words that are gonna be like, what are you talking about? But if you have what is essentially the Hebrew Bible, uh, my teacher, Dr. Ed Kessler, who's in Cambridge, explained this, he, so he started the, the Center for Jewish Christian Relations up in Cambridge and um, I took a class with him many years ago. And what he explained is that you know, some people, depending on which tradition you're from, um, tend to see things as, okay, we followed the straight line down to how we interpret, and the other people beard off in another direction. And I think that's been from, you can hear that from Christian tradition and Jewish tradition. He explained it really in a way that, for me, helped to clarify, and this is tied up with what we're talking about today. In case you're thinking I'm taking a detour. So we have the core, the five books of Moses, the prophets, the writings, right? Everybody on board so far. But then in terms of the commentary, in terms of how we understand how to apply those books to our everyday life, Judaism and Christianity went that way. And our interpretation, our ways of looking at sacred text, how we live it, how we apply it. Um, yes, there's a lot of legal stuff in, in, in what we look at, but not only, and that's what I'm going to get to. So we have the Talmud, which is tied up in teaching and learning. And you all have the New Testament. So both are ways of looking back at our common sacred text to figure out how we live it. And then that explains, we're looking at it through different lenses. right? We're looking at it completely different lenses. In both the Talmud and, as you well know, the New Testament, there are what you call parables. There are stories that help us better connect with um, our tradition, whether it goes back specifically to text, but just everyday everyday life. Um, So Midrash... And I'm going to just, if you look at it specifically, it's a way of discerning value in texts, words, letters, and even spaces. So you think, okay, we're speaking in English, we study in English, but actually this is applying going back to the original biblical text. Because, uh, I keep wanting to erase things, I don't know if someone can hand me a cloth at some point. Originally, it doesn't matter that you, you know, some of you. I don't know, anybody know Hebrew in here or can read it? No, that's okay. You don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> There's always one, usually. So I, I don't assume. Thank you. Okay. So if you go back far enough in the Hebrew, there were no spaces between the le- the words right? So where we would read, and I'll just say it says Bereshit Barah, um, which gets interpreted in the beginning or at the beginning of God's creating or in the beginning God created, you can play with that and separate the words differently. And yet shows up a lot in the midrash Jewishly. So that's one aspect that you're not going to see in the English, which is, ties in later, I know you're going to, ta- we're going to talk about caveats, things to be aware of. So it's really important, Jewishly, that we go back to the original text. Um, The other thing to note, you think, oh, you're just playing with the letters. You know, you're just pushing things around. But the rabbis that wrote the Midrash, the rabbis that were trying to figure out what all this means, it was seen as holy work. It wasn't games to them. They're like, we need to look at, what does this actually mean? How does this connect us with our tradition? And also Midrash uses metaphor like you were talking about before. I think the Bailey quotes were brilliant because we can't actually know God directly, but but by studying Midrash, there's the text, there's us, and somewhere in the middle, we figure out what God intends or somehow we actually meet God in the middle between us and the text if we really wrestle with it, if we really try to figure it out. Um, I wanted to give you one example right now, which is, if you, um, when I talked about words and letters and spaces, that everything counts, like even duplication, even a slight word difference, right, that that also becomes something where we find meaning. So I'll give you an example of something that I was explaining yesterday in the synagogue which is um, right now, every day, all the way lead up to High Holy Days, we study Psalm 27. Actually, we don't study it, but we read it. And one of the things in um, the psalm is this little word, meate, which, if you read a translation, it says from. Okay? Um, Okay. Me'et, from. Tiny little word, right? And actually, it's um, one thing do I ask from God, if you're translating it, except this is what the Midrash makers do. This is what they do in Talmud and also a lot of other collections that are not in the Talmud. This word is related, can be related, to the word for a hundred. See, there's only one letter off. But actually, and I'm sorry if this is, I'm trying not to do it too fast. So someone stop me. Please put up your hand if you have a question. I would rather you ask me than be confused. Okay? But essentially this also can mean a hundred. So instead of saying eight from, me'at, a hundred. What does that mean? One thing do I ask a hundred times of God. And the rest goes all, um, achashal Um, Yeah, one thing do I continue to ask of you, one thing do I want from you. So instead of just saying one thing, it's like we keep asking you for this God, right? So being able to know, and this probably is going to come up with some of the other questions, but I can say it now, being able to know that there are other ways of pronouncing in the Hebrew, other ways of looking at the letters, it opens, yes, Oh, I'm so sorry. Hold on a second. Thank you for putting up your hand. Appreciate that. Thanks. So um, this can, so this was the word meat, which also would have vowels, but we don't have to worry about that actually. Mea is a hundred in Hebrew, but actually you can pronounce this meat. Right? So from just a little word that you think means nothing in the Hebrew, you can do all kinds of things with. Suddenly it becomes not just one thing do I ask you. I ask this one thing a hundred times. Just from knowing that about the Hebrew.
0: Um, well, I'm I think wondering. I'll stop there. Can you give us like a one sentence definition for Talmud and yes. Midrash? Just, just in case.
1: So so I did give the definition for Midrash. Yeah, I'll repeat again. Aside. So that's okay. Discern uh, Midrash discerns value in the text, the words, the letters, and even the spaces. So... Midrash, um, it comes from a root that has to be, has to do with exploring or looking for, right? So you're looking for the deeper meaning, you're looking for what is going on in the text, even in the spaces. And then the Talmud, the word Talmud, comes um, from the root, the Hebrew root, um, meaning to study or to learn. So again, it's about learning and teaching, and so they're all connected with the same root, because um, in Hebrew you have roots, and then you can build on that and, and come up with all kinds of meanings. So I hope that was... So going back to that original diagram, whether you call it parable in the New Testament or you're calling it midrash for what we're doing, it's all about exploring the text and, and opening it up to interpretation and connection.
0: So it's like a way of exploring yeah. the text. Yeah. Brilliant, okay, yeah. thank you. Uh, Brill, so when you think about um, parables, what do you, what do you think are sort of some of the gifts that parables give us?
1: Um, just on a purely basic level, I think it, it, it can be really easy sometimes to just look at the text and read it and not stop long enough to really explore it a little more. So I think it opens up the text in different ways and it reveals, um, the deeper meaning of the text. Um, It also can help us to connect the text where we are. So you were talking a little little bit earlier about Jesus and referring to shepherds and all that and really talking to his audience, Um, speaking to his audience. I think it's whether, no matter what the time period is that these things come from, it it can help open up the text for us in different ways. Um, The other thing I was gonna pick up on is when you were talking about the, the gem and the facets. So there is a Midrash, right? So a rabbinic teaching about when, that when the Israelites received the gifts at Sinai, received the Torah at Sinai, that it was likened to a statue, actually. So that, that no matter where you stood, the statue was looking at you and you were connecting with it. And where that goes on is it says, so no matter where you were in your understanding, no matter where you were in your life, that the message came to you according to your own understanding, according to your own connection, and um, so what that also means is each, um, the beauty about these midrashim, plural, is that as you revisit them going through your life, they're going to speak to you in different ways, just like the text itself speaks to you in different ways.
0: So they're kind of timeless in that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, okay. Um, And then what about maybe some of the caveats of parables (laughs) that we need to be aware of?
1: So first of all, not to take them literally. Right, I think I think we see throughout the world when things get taken too literally, how it sets up boundaries between people. It's and 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 actually, it's not. It's for us to sort of wrestle with, um, and just going back to root. So the root for the word Yisrael, Israel, it means God wrestlers. So not only are we wrestling with God, we're wrestling with the text to wrestle with God. So there are all those layers. Um, it's also really important to remember that they're a product of their time. Right, So when we're reading these parables or reading these midrashim, whether it's in the New Testament or in the, in the Talmud or whatever other collections there are midrashim, oh, I forgot to mention, they go back to probably the earliest ones are like second, third century. Um, but they're probably even older, right, these collections. And, um, and because they're part of a particular, you know, speaking to a particular audience, there are certain social constructs Right, that we don't have today or that have shifted today. Values may have changed. Um, certain kinds of pressures that they... I, I, life was much simpler then, right? And I would imagine, I think Jesus probably had it a lot easier, as did all the rabbis in that time period, because it's not like they were all sitting with texts all the time or had, you know, things blasted at them all the time. They, you know, to hear someone speak who is eloquent and could somehow say this is the meaning and this is how we can live our lives was quite powerful. Um, the politics, some of the politics might have been similar, um, but I think a lot of it was different. And um, and also I think one of the biggest things is not to take out of context, right? So so make sure, and, and actually you referred to that a bit about you know not just a social context, but also the textual context. So for example, when we're looking at a... Um, Studying a midrash, we don't just look at that itself. We look at where it's referring to, and not just look at those little snippets, but but what it what um, what larger story those snippets are embedded in. So even the the scriptural texts are not taken out of context. And they so one thing about Jewish um, about midrashim is that we are. And I don't know if it's similar or not in, in the New Testament, but we're always quoting other parts of the Hebrew Bible to kind of back up the text and say, well, because of this, because of that.
0: Yeah, I think maybe linking it, that triangulation, you know, if I, kind yeah, of like, yeah. if I take this interpretation or I think of it like that. that, yes. it, is it backed up by what else is in the text? Yeah, yeah. similar. Yeah, so sort of understanding the context, I think, you know, really important historical, social, but also where it sits within the, the scriptures itself. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Um, and then how, how are parables used today within Judaism? And I've read, you know, stories of people sitting at the feet of the rabbis (laughs) in the first century, and I've sort of got this weird picture of you in a synagogue in Bristol with these people at your feet as you tell these parables. And I'm sure that's (laughs) not right. So, (laughs) (laughs) so what's the sort of modern
1: back there, (laughs) you know, no, it's not quite, but, um,
0: how do you, yeah, what are they, what's I, the function I, of them today? How do you use them as a rabbi, I think?
1: So, if you go back to context, when you read those descriptions, it's because there were schools that people would go in. And we have that today. We have, they're called yeshivot, yeshivas, or, um, you know, schools. There's some in, um, there are a couple in this country. They're in the States. They're in, are kind of all over the place, where people go to exclusively study. So some of those things that come up, and you'll even see this. Um, I don't know how um, familiar people are with the ethics of the fathers. So um, there will be, at, which is actually um, part of the. It's something in the Talmud, one of the tractates in the Talmud. Um, when you read things, it sounds like it's specifically for a rabbinic or a student audience. But actually, that's not why we study it. We study it to expand it and, and connect with it. So um, no. I I don't have people sitting at my feet. I don't think I'd want that, to be honest. I, I, you know, generally when I, if I'm teaching, if I'm not up in front of a group, we're around a table because I don't like to be at the head of the table. Um, And it's about really understanding the deeper meaning um, and how I use them. Use parables is pretty much in line with how you do. (laughs) To be honest, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know what? It makes it means the tradition is so much richer, right? It's not just the dry reading of the text, but stories like you were saying earlier. You know what? I see stories as opening up the heart to the message. You know, so there's so much that you spoke about earlier that resonated with me and how I teach and how I. um, No one wants to just sit there and. I mean, okay, there are a few people probably who just want to read through sacred text and that's it we want to hear help us understand how we're connected right help us understand what this means for us you know that's all really important right
0: um so with full permission to be honest (laughs) and particularly as we kind of start this this series what are some of the ways that you think christians perhaps um can misunderstand or misread parables
1: I think it's not just Christians. I think Jews as well is just looking at, this, the par- at a parable as a nice little story, you know, and, and quoting it without really deeper investigation. Um, and I think the tricky part, I mean, I, I can't speak for Greek, so I don't know what they do in the Greek, but if you think, if you go back to our sacred texts, and I think it's changing now in some of the churches, but you would have the Hebrew text, which was translated into the Greek and then translated into English. So you've actually twice removed from the original text. So the danger sometimes, especially if you're quoting from Hebrew scripture, is looking at the English and not really going back and looking at the wider context and what the Hebrew says. Because the minute you translate something, you've narrowed its understanding. I I always say this, every translation's an interpretation because there's an agenda of the translator, right? So the, so you just have to be careful about assuming, oh, that's the right text,
0: yeah. Yeah, great. So they look, perhaps, a practical application for them, for, for us then is perhaps to look at different translations, but also to look at things like commentaries and different Absolutely. commentaries that would sort of discuss the, the deeper meaning and the context. And at look at
1: Jewish translations as well, because there are differences Um, Even though um, I know sometimes when I look at the King James Translation, it's very lofty language. It doesn't always speak to me, Uh, and I even, if I look at, like, the Jewish Publication Society as one of my go-to translations, um, I'm not always happy with the translation. And even within rabbinical school, we would argue there was a joke that we had. So remember I said about how the letters were all squished together originally? Not only that, from about 400 to, or 600 to 1000 CE, um, so we say CE, common era, you would say AD, right? So from that time period, there was a group of rabbis called the Masoretes who realized people were losing the understanding of how you punctuate the text, how you pronounce the text, obviously the Hebrew text, and what you do with that. So they, they worked for like 400 years to fix that and we used to joke in rabbinical school, even us, we'd go back to the text and say, oh, you should read it this way, and the teacher would say, no, 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 that's not what it says in the punctuation, like, we need to take a Maserite to lunch and ask them, you know, they don't exist anymore, but it was a joke, because why, why did they fix it that way? It wasn't fixed originally, so why can't we open it up? So again, going back to the Hebrew, it does different things for you. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, okay, so then um, I guess we've maybe talked about the kind of the overall aim of perhaps engaging with a deeper meaning, looking at the context. Mm-hmm. Is there a particular framework or a way that you approach a parables sort or of stages you work through, anything like that?
1: Yeah, so um, the first thing is, if it exists, I will get an English translation just to get a rough overview sense of what the Hebrew's saying, because I always get the Hebrew and then I get the English translation. But then, if I'm really spending the time with it to understand what it's saying, is I will work to develop, first of all, my own translation, and then try to make larger connections. So I go back to the original text, it's commenting on also, because remember I mentioned earlier, it will be quoting different things. I will go back and say, okay, it's quoted this, what is the purpose in bringing that text? What's the context of that text in our scripture? And what is, so, what is it actually saying? Because sometimes, if you just have that verse, you think it's one thing, and then you go back, and it's not actually what it's telling us. So, I will do that. I will go back and read really carefully the original text, and that's called a close reading, where you look very, very careful at the text, um, and then try to sort of open it. You know, like talking about the the, sev- the different facets. So, it's it's starting from that working through a translation, but also good. So there, and it's not necessarily linear because I will go back and forth between those things and try to figure that out, you know?
0: Okay, great. Almost, I haven't connected you, or using the, the gem thing as almost a way of, of, you know, process, you know, mm-hmm. like, like a sort of, sort of, almost a framework to go through it. I like that. These are all things I'm gonna steal for well, reading them in the week, which is great.
1: Uh, the other thing I would say yeah. is that I don't go straight to commentary. Okay. So the reason being, is so I don't get, I can come up with my own ideas before I get influenced by anything else. Right? So I'll wrestle with the text, wrestle with the text, and you're like, and suddenly some really interesting things will come up. And again, a lot of it is because it shows up in the Hebrew and not in the English. Right? There are things that get um, kind of pop up in the Hebrew that don't necessarily show themselves in the English. So, yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. So maybe kind of almost read it and sit with it for a couple of days, then go to... Commentaries, or yeah, that's great. Okay, and perhaps we've covered this, but thinking about us as a as a church, sort of you know, starting this series on parables. Any particular sort of words of wisdom or advice that you'd give to us as we do that? You might have covered it, but wait for the sign.
1: Um, yeah, like not to make any assumptions. Uh, before you start, sort of being open to what the text is on the page. Um, it's really hard to turn off a our internal critics and b kind of shut out whatever else we've read or heard from other people, I think the first place for me, whether it's, it's the biblical text or it's the Midrashic text, is just to sit with that text and figure out what things, you know, so like I'll sit with it and I'll jot down my ideas first. And sometimes it's really interesting because then I'll go and look up something and lo and behold, the rabbis from 1,400 years ago or 2,000 years ago were saying the same thing which is you know, kind of validating, but also it means, it, what it tells me and should tell you is that we all have our inner wisdom, right? That just because we don't, you know, you don't have necessarily the title of rabbi or priest or vicar, whatever it is, doesn't mean you can't use your own wisdom to connect with the text.
0: Yeah. And I think we would probably describe that as like the Holy Spirit in us. So our, mm. our belief is that God is you know within us, guiding us. And so when we read the text, that God speaks to us. And so that's, yeah, a good way of kind of linking that. Yeah, mm. um, great. Okay, so uh, we're gonna open it out. So just if you've got any questions or things that um, just sort of, have a think what you might want to ask in a sec, but I'd love just to ask if you have a, a favorite parable that you'd like to tell us, or perhaps one that we've not heard.
1: There's so many, <laughs> I, like, I knew she was gonna ask me this question. So, um, so I was trying to think about a parable that um, A, is one of my favorites, but also B, helps you to see why it's so important sometimes to go back to the Hebrew. So, um, erase this. and it also speaks to how every letter is important, and also the idea that not, it goes back to us being, everything being, being created by God, or God being the creator, words, letters, all that kind of thing. So there's, so in the story of Abraham and Sarah, right, actually originally his name was Avram, right? And her name was Sarai. Right, follow me, okay. And then eventually, he became Abraham. And she became Sarah. Right, so what I said is, nothing's an accident. Right, the rabbis are like, that's really interesting. You know, what, so there are lots of parables, there are lots of stories about, how this came about, what the purpose of this was. But in the Hebrew, so Avram is spelled like this. And it becomes Avraham, there's a letter that's inserted. Okay, it's the letter hey. That's important. And Sarah or Sarai becomes Sarah. It's also, letter hey. She also she originally had this letter. So when God changed their names to said made them from Avram to Avraham and Sarai to Sarah, the letter Yud was really upset. Right said, what have you done? You know, you're, you're striking the two founding people of Judaism, right? You're, you're striking me from Sarah's name. What, what happens to me? And so the other piece you need to know is that a hay, if you look at numerical values of Hebrew letters, equals five. The Yud, which was originally in Sarai's name, is 10. Because this is something else that the rabbis do. They look at numerical values of things. And so what God essentially says to the Yud, so Yud is also the first letter of God's name in Hebrew, Um, one of God's names. There are many God names. God essentially says to the Yud, no, no, no. You're actually still there because your value, and I'm paraphrasing of course, gets divided up between their two names, right? So you are represented by the five and the five. You're still there, but you are now present in Abraham's name, and you're now present in Sarah's name, right? So even though you're in the background, just like God is always in the background, right? So the Yud is in the background, so that's another layer, that it's not just God saying the Yud is still there, the Yud representing God, and I'm, I'm adding my own, this is part of studying it, saying it's also saying that God is still there in our lives. So I didn't realize this until you'd asked that question. I really started thinking about this. So there's, there's a couple things. First of all, that God is always with us. God is a part of us, and especially if we're all made in God's image, you know, going back to Genesis. Um, and we're all made. And so as that, we aspire to holiness. But also, I started to think because... We have a number of aging people in my community, right? A lot of communities have people who are aging. This idea that even if people no longer serve a prominent role in the community, as they age, that, that we still find a way to include them, right? If you're thinking of the modern applications, right? That maybe their role changes in the community, but they're still honored, because that's what happens here, still honored for their contribution, right? So even though the, just like even though the Yud was no longer obviously there, still there in the background through other means, still present in that. And that's, I showed you this because it shows so many different layers of how we look at um, parable in Judaism um, and the whole idea of metaphor, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, that's one of my favorites because it just takes, that everything counts, the letters count, the letters have meaning, names have meaning, names have really strong meaning. And what do we make of that? And that's, that's how we then can expand, so yeah.
0: Amazing, fascinating, thank you. You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org.